You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's actually kind of sunny out. So I'm kind of squinting because the, the windows, my windows face west, and, and uh, even with the shades, it's kind of bright. So uh, bear with me as I squint my way through another hour of trying to get you up to date on what's happening here in Lane County, Oregon, and maybe even across the country. But more important than that, it's an opportunity for you to ask me anything you want, chime in on an issue of the day, take the, the show in a direction you want it to go. Just have to call us, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and that will get you in on the conversation. So um, got lots to talk about today, uh, although, you know, it's kind of funny when I first started thinking about what I, what, what am I going to talk about on the show today because, you know, didn't cover a lot in the board meeting yesterday, and, and uh, you know, we had an evening public comment session, and nobody showed up to give us any public comment. You know, we purposely do those like once a month or so to try and give people an opportunity, you know, outside of business hours to talk to their commissioners. So, you know, other than my radio show where you can talk to a commissioner, um, but no one showed up. So it doesn't generate a whole lot of of topics for the show because we didn't cover a whole lot of ground. But then I got to thinking there's all sorts of things to talk about out there because the legislature is in session, so there's always something going on up at Salem. And, you know, yesterday was our one-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Lane County. So thus, we are one year into the pandemic being right here local in Lane County. And I thought it might be a you know, time to, to sit back and think about that a little bit and remember, you know, how uncertain those days were. I think I'd just gotten back from a trip to Washington, D.C., traveling in an airplane, all that stuff. So, you know, kind of nerve wracking because, you know, you're still in that 14 days kind of wondering, you know, because at, at that time they were saying 14 days incubation. Um, and, uh, you know, everything else that's going on at that time. And we're trying to, to figure out what to do. What was fortunate, though, is our public health folks had stood up an incident command way early on in this whole thing, back in early February, um, and we're already preparing for the pandemic to reach Lane County. So we have a really good public health department here in Lane County, and they've done an excellent job at managing this pandemic to the best of their ability. 
you know, despite some of the uh, the inconsistent um, restrictions and the distribution of vaccines and and other things that have come out of the state um, and and you know testing resources, everything else, you know, because remember back last March and April, people weren't concerned about getting vaccinated; they're concerned about getting tested. And we had limited testing capability. People were concerned about getting a mask because we couldn't get masks. You know, it was a whole different world a year ago. And now everybody is, you know, contacting me not because they, you know, can't get PPE or they feel like they're being exposed at work or, you know, they want to get tested and they can't get tested and they're vulnerable, you know, part of a vulnerable population. You know, all that stuff, you know, we're, we're testing, you know, Nobody, you know, if you want to get tested, you can get tested now. Um, it, it, that's not not the issue. If you want to get a mask, they're for sale everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you, you just about trip over them walking into, you know, Fred Meyer's or some other, you know, hardware stores or whatever. It's, you know, one of the front displays is all those disposable masks or, or cloth masks, you name it. Um, you know, so all that stuff is now available, you know, because I remember um, you know, it was hard to find rubber gloves even back then. Now it's all about vaccines and getting vaccinated. But, you know, even that is changing quickly. Um, it's amazing how fast we got a vaccine out. Because, I mean, we're, we're one year, you know, to the day last was yesterday that we had our first case. And as of, you know, yesterday, our public health folks were reporting that we had vaccinated a major portion of our seniors at this point. You know, we've already taken care of vaccinating, um, you know, healthcare workers, first responders. We've got teachers that were ahead of seniors. Uh, prisoners got it, got put ahead of seniors. So we didn't get started. You know, that was a whole different story that seniors got started so late. But the first group of seniors became eligible on February 8th with the, the folks that were over 80, 80 and up. And, um, you know, the folks that were between 65 and 69 became eligible on March 1st. We have vaccinated 55% of our seniors in Lane County. And uh, when you look at the 80 up folks, we're at 67% have received at least the first dose, and there's a good portion of them that have actually gotten both doses in that group. Um, and even when you get down to the 65 to 69-year-olds, we're at 43%, and they've only been eligible for two weeks. And we've already gotten through, you know, um, almost half of that population. So a uh, pretty amazing job that our public health folks have done in setting up these mass vaccination clinics um, and, and having the ability for folks to get the vaccine in their arms, we haven't wasted a single dose in Lane County. You know, the, the, whatever vaccine we've been allocated from the government has gone into arms. So, and in fact, we are actually leading the other large population counties in this state in per capita vaccination. We're ahead of Marion. Washington, Clackamas, and Multnomah counties in per capita vaccinated vaccination rate. So those of you that, you know, 
are hearing from somebody that, that lives up in Marion County and they got a shot and, and you haven't heard from us yet, just know that, you know, we're actually doing better than they are. Even though you may not have gotten your shot yet, just have some patience. We'll get to you. We're getting more and more vaccine every week. It's kind of, it's almost been growing almost exponentially from week to week uh, after a very slow start. Um, so it, 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 that's been the good news, you know, how much vaccine we're starting at. The really good news is just how well we are prepared to ramp up. You know, uh, our um, public health folks reported to us yesterday that we have the capability to provide at least 30,000 vaccinations a week, uh, in, you know, from our, our sites. And right now we're, we're basically giving out 10,000 from our mass vax clinics a, a week. Uh, it's, you know, we, we've set up uh, multiple locations now. In fact, we're going to be opening one at Autzen Stadium that's going to be our largest so far with the most lanes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we've gone mobile where we're doing them down at the Florence Events Center. Uh, we've also gone to Cottage Grove. We're going upriver this weekend to do some mobile clinic work. Uh, so we're getting out into the rural areas. Uh, you know, we've got programs where we're getting vaccines into some of the uh, retail pharmacies like Bimart and Fred Meyer. Um, and it just the amount of vaccine available is growing, but there, you know, the one thing I want people to understand though is the, there is no priority list for who gets vaccinated first. It's a pool that we're drawing from. And we try and contact people and if people don't get back to us right away, we go to the next person on the list. And we're just trying to get people out of that pool as fast as we can. And uh, obviously if you've been in the pool longer, like the 80 plus folks, two thirds of you have gotten a vaccine. If you've been in the pool shorter, like the 65 to 69-year-olds um, that have only been in it for two weeks, only 43% of you have been pulled out of that pool. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we will get to you. And pretty soon there's going to be more people eligible, so the pool's going to grow, you know, grow. But, you know, hopefully we're pulling more people out. And as we get more and more vaccine and we have that capacity to ramp up our clinics, you know, we will get, we will get people vaccinated. You know, we're over 11% of our population has gotten both doses of the vaccine here in Lane County. So really, I, I can't tell you how impressed I am with our public health folks and their, their work and, and diligence and the volunteers that have helped. I mean, from the Eugene Rotary Club to our Mounted Posse, to, you know, all sorts of volunteers that have stepped up, you know, health professionals, you know, these, you know, folks that, you know, are six-figure health professionals um, during the week are working weekend days putting shots in arm for us, uh, you know, and just, you know, average daily Joes can volunteer to help, you know, take information you know, route traffic around around the sites, uh, tell people where they need to go, you know, all those various little roles, a little bit of training ahead of time with our staff, and we can get you plugged in. If you're interested, you know, drop me a line. I'll connect you with the right people um, or just contact our public health folks. I'm sure, sure they'd be happy to take more volunteers. 
but the community stepped up in a way uh, that's pretty impressive, along with our staff, our professional staff, and the logistical organization they've done in getting that together. And it's just been, you know, pretty impressive to think that a year ago we were struggling just to get people tested. And the concern was, are we testing enough so we can understand who's contagious and we can isolate them and quarantine folks, you know? Do we have masks? Do we have PPE, you know, for, for the people that are in contact with folks that are contagious? What are we going to do, um, you know, with our jails? What are we going to do with our homeless shelters? You know, how are we going to deal with all that? It was just such, you know, so many questions and trying to, to deal to deal with all that. Um, you know, that was one year ago. Now, a year later, um, we're at uh, moderate level risk here in Lane County. We actually were just above the the trigger to drop down to low. Uh, if we could drop a few more cases over the next week, we might be able to even drop into that low category here in Lane County of risk, which is, you know, pretty impressive after that fall surge and, and um, late winter. Uh, so hopefully we can keep that under control because one thing is, is only 11% of our population's gotten that vaccine and is fully vaccinated. That means almost 90% still are unprotected and can catch COVID and also, um, you know, pass it on, you know, be a carrier. So we still need to do all the things that we were supposed to be doing over the last year. And, and that's, you know, we need to, you know, wear your mask, you know, when you're around people and uh, try and keep six feet apart all the good stuff, wash your hands, don't touch your face, <laughs> stay home if you're sick. You know, all those smart things that we've been doing, in fact, we did them so well that our flu death rate has dropped down to almost nothing because, you know, the same things we do to prevent COVID prevent influenza transmissions. And that's uh, it's been a pretty impressive thing to see across the country is how, how much how low our influenza death rate has dropped. <clears throat> and it, it's due to some of those protections. And what's also interesting when it comes to COVID is I've seen some reports going both directions about whether or not the restrictions state put in place were effective or not. And I would warn people to be careful because there's one report going around now that says they really didn't matter whether you had restrictions or not. They're trying to compare California versus Florida, South Dakota versus Connecticut or Massachusetts. I can't remember which one of those New England states they're, they're comparing that to. And the thing about those reports is they kind of include from the very beginning of the pandemic <clears throat> when we really didn't understand COVID well and hadn't come up with decent treatment regimens that were standardized and isolation and everything else. So it's probably better to look at a study that the American Enterprise Institute did, which compared states' performance since July 1, which kind of gives the amount of time for people to understand COVID, not do stupid things like send people to recover to nursing homes, like New York did, uh, that drove their numbers up in the beginning of the pandemic, 
and look at how each state dealt with the fall surge in some ways and the impact of that. And if you look from that point forward, it's pretty clear that states that were restrictive actually had lower case rates and deaths during the surge than the states that didn't. Um, I know that there are going to be people that aren't going to be happy with that sort of analysis, but it's true. And even if you do the comparison between California and Florida from day one, Florida still did slightly worse than California. And if you take that slightly worse death rate and multiply it into California's population, it's another 6,000 deaths. I mean, percentage-wise, it wasn't a very big big difference in death rate. But, you know, it, that's still, you know, 6,000 people is still 6,000 people. So, you know, we, be careful about you know, reading stories and looking at analysis and trying to make, make this sort of comparison. There is one analysis, though, that is very clear because it's, it's you know, doesn't, doesn't really have any um, way that you can spin this or change the numbers. States that were more restrictive in controlling COVID had a greater increase in unemployment by percentage than the states that didn't. With the one exception, there's only one state that took high restrictions that, that had low uh, increase in unemployment, and that's Vermont, and I, don't, and I can't explain that easily. But they're the one outlier. But of the other 49 states, you look at who was more restrictive versus who wasn't, and it's a direct correlation to how much increase in unemployment between February of 2020 to February of 2021. And, and it, you know, states like California, large increases, Oregon, large increase, Idaho, almost nothing. South Dakota, virtually nothing. One of the lowest increases in unemployment in the country. But then again, South Dakota had one of the highest COVID case rates per 100,000 and death rates per 100,000. So there's a trade-off there. You know, so the question is, is, you know, what's the balance there? The other thing that comes with that is there's also a clear indication that the restriction, more restrictive states have had an increase in youth suicide rates. So, you know, there's a, a mental health issue. There's a, a financial health issue for the population that you have to balance with a physical health issue. And, and, you know, how much those all go together in, in that decision-making matrix uh, that public policymakers have to make. And I guess it's kind of 2020 hindsight to try and pick out which state got it right. Um, and I, I, I just can't tell you that there's any one correct answer to that. But I would caution people about some of the studies that start from day one comparing death and case rates to, to look at the second half of the year um, to try and compare uh, policies around COVID control versus COVID case counts and death rates. So that's a whole lot about COVID, <laughs> but I wanted to cover that because it's just, you know, it, it's interesting to think and look back what was going on a year ago in your life and, and, and what, was, what was in the news? And, and, can you, and, and remember, 
you know, all the craziness that was going on for a while. And, you know, it wasn't that far that we looked back on, um, you know, because there was so much talk about it coming from China where the mayor of New York was doing um, television interviews from Chinatown to talk about how safe it was, you know. Uh, to, you know, flash forward to today's news where apparently some guy shot up a couple uh, massage parlors and they thought it was an anti-Asian uh, incident. It may have just been a sexual perversion incident. Um, we still haven't found out all the details of that. But, you know, amazing changes over uh, 12 months here in in, in uh, Oregon and across the nation relative to COVID. Excuse me a minute there, I had to wet the whistle. Um, but I just want to remind folks, as I start switching topics, if you wanted to talk about COVID or if there's something else, just have to give us a call here at 646-721-9887. That's 646 646- 721-9887, because I'm going to get on to talking about diesel a little bit. But, you know, I did have one, one more COVID-related item. <laughs> Sorry, almost forgot about this one. Um, so I understand a lot of people are already getting their COVID checks in their checking accounts if they filed electronically last year with their taxes and everything, and they, they hit the correct income stuff. They're already seeing those those dollars in their checking account. Don't think I have, um, but that's, you know, I haven't really checked. Don't watch my checking account balance daily. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure people are careful because don't spend all that money in one place. You might want to put 9% of it aside for the state of Oregon. Because the state is going to tax all of those COVID relief checks. In fact, they're even possibly going to tax the PPP loans that the businesses were getting, you know, for the payroll loans um, on on corporations and and businesses. Because the state hasn't, you know, the legislature, you would think, you know, they met multiple times in special sessions during about this whole COVID crisis. Could have done it back in those special sessions. Could have done it early in this session. I don't know why. You know, it it always puzzles me to watch the Oregon legislature. Instead of dealing with the most important things that they probably should deal with that are somewhat time sensitive, like maybe exempting folks from from being taxed on their COVID relief checks, or possibly amending Oregon's land use codes to provide extensions of time periods for permitting to replace a fire damaged dwelling from the wildfires from Labor Day of last year. You think, you know, those those couple bills could be pushed through committee, voted on the floors, and pushed up to the governor early. You know, why aren't those like, oh my God, we got to get this done first. No, we're going to start having hearings on gun control and, you know, phasing out petroleum diesel and taxing diesel and, you know, all these controversial bills that don't have any time sensitivity to them, 
and put off the, the really important stuff because we know if we put off that important stuff to last, pressure on Republicans to prevent them from walking out because they really know that they want, you know, folks not to get taxed for their COVID relief funds. They want folks to be able to rebuild their homes after a fire and not have some artificial state deadline prevent them from doing so. But no, we can't put those first and put the controversial stuff last because we want to try and force the controversial stuff down the super minority's throat. Yeah, and what happens is what happened in the last couple sessions is, you know, eventually the super minority gets fed up and says, you know what, we don't care. We're going to walk out anyway. And some really important things that should have gotten fixed at the legislature haven't yet. Put it first. I don't know why they can't have a hearing tomorrow, a work session, and move whatever bills they need to move out of one house down to the next and do the same thing next week and get it to the governor's desk to exempt COVID relief funds from from Oregon state taxes to fix the 12-month deadline for rural residential to rebuild after a fire, knowing that you can't even get a contractor in 12 months. It's going to be difficult to even get permits in 12 months because of everybody is trying to rebuild homes. Over 4,000 homes in Oregon suddenly need to be rebuilt. 400 plus right here in Lane County. You know how hard it is to get a contractor right now? Get an architect, get an engineer to draw drawings to get a soils engineer on site to do a geotechnical report, 12 months to replace a dwelling. How hard would it be for the state legislature to put that bill on the docket right now, get it done? You know those will pass almost unanimous votes. How hard would it be for them to do the same thing with the COVID relief fund tax issue? Get that stuff done first. No, no, we're going to talk about other stuff, which we'll get into next here on the Bose Nose Show. And, and if you want to get into something else, just give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show because some people call in just to listen. In fact, we've got somebody listening on their cell phone right now because they might be away from their computer, and it's a good way to listen live. 646-721-9887, just press 1, and we'll have a conversation here on the Bose Nose Show and talk about what you want to talk about, but I'm going to start talking about diesel because it seems like... Yeah, it seems like some of our Portland representatives, uh, and and that's uh, Noss and Power, uh, don't seem to understand that everything depends on the transportation system and our food all depend on diesel. I mean, the transportation system is run by diesel trucks. 
run on petroleum diesel and our food all is farmed using diesel. You don't see gas-powered tractors out there or battery-powered tractors out in the field. You see diesel-powered tractors. And in fact, you know, thinking about the wildfires, it wasn't, you know, solar-powered bulldozers out cutting fire lines, keeping, you know, saving people's homes. That was, quote, off-road diesel, which is a big target of the legislature, it seems like, uh, you know, fueling those tractors out in the field and there's bulldozers cutting the fire lines. So, you know, some of these representatives need to understand that because they're putting bills forward, you know, at, at either to ban petroleum diesel to go to all, quote, biodiesel, or to increase the percentages of biodiesel in our fuel in the state, or to tax various uh, diesel, you know, products and, and tires, et cetera, to support a, quote, clean diesel fund, uh, you know, all of it just seems to be centered around the objective of, you know, that uh, we just, you know, diesel is some evil, awful thing. And what's really not understood is our diesel engines have gotten cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. In fact, you can't buy, you know, as of 2008, you, the particulate matter coming out of an exhaust pipe of a diesel engine is almost non-existent because that was when all the EPA rules, you know, got phased in completely. So any, you know, that's 13 years ago. You know, so you'd have to have a, a truck or a tractor or bulldozer that's older than 13 years to really have a, a quote, quote, dirty diesel. And, and they're slowly just aging out of, out of the, uh, the workforce, so to speak, and mostly clean diesel out there. And diesel is such a small piece of our particulate and, and what they call PM25, particulate matter less than 2.5 micro microns in size, which is the reason that's important is that's the size that can actually get down into your lungs um, and brachial tubes and, and, and uh, really cause a lot of lung, a lot of problems uh, as far as toxins go, particularly if those particulate matter contains um, what they call PAHs, uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, you know, um, and that's the two, that's the two big boogeymen of diesel pollution is, you know, PM25 and PAHs. Diesel's not a big source in Oregon. You know what the number one source of PM25 and PAHs is in Oregon? Wildfire! By a huge amount. Number two, wood-burning stoves. Diesel's way down there. It's a very small portion and decreasing portion of our, our of our air, you know, pollution in this state. But it is responsible 
for feeding the state and providing every consumer good. So as you add cost to that, you are adding cost to people's food and every consumer good they have. So who gets hurt by all this this do-gooding stuff that ha- that really isn't necessary? All the low-income people and people of color, you know, and, and disenfranchised and everyone else that supposedly these representatives from Portland are supposed to be the champions of. Let's increase the cost of diesel. Let's mandate some kind of biofuel. By the way, just ask the Portland Water Bureau how well it went over when they converted to biofuel in their fleet about 10 years ago. They had to replace a whole bunch of engines. <laughs> you know, it's just the industry, the biofuel industry, one doesn't have the capacity, even in studies that show if it could ramp up to max amount, it can, it can only supply about 20% of the total needs in Oregon for diesel fuel. And that's if it's at max capacity, and it's not even anywhere close to that now. So some of these mandates, we're not even prepared to supply the, that, that amount of biodiesel, non-petroleum diesel, as they like to call it. So I don't know how, you know, these representatives from the Portland area expect to feed the population of Oregon and particularly Portland, seeing everything, you know, I don't know many, you know, major farming, you know, that goes on inside the city limits of Portland. I believe almost all their food gets there on a truck powered by diesel, gets, you know, grown in a field, cultivated, planted, and harvested with diesel, taken to the food processing plant in a diesel truck, you know, diesel, diesel, diesel. <laughs> like, what, where's the disconnect? You know, and, you know, Representative Noss, you know, I guess he just has this disconnect with food in general because he's also got a bill out there that's going to ban new dairy, new large dairy farms. I guess he doesn't like milk and cheese either. Or butter. So, you know, not only is he going after a diesel tax and and everything else, he's also not liking dairy. But, you know, I I shouldn't pin this all on our, uh, our folks up there in Portland, like Representative Noss and Representative Power and Senator Dembro. Um, even Representative Wilde put forward his own biodiesel 20% rule um, in the House for, here from from Eugene. But, you know, that's the same guy that was going to ban bacon in nursing homes and uh, sausage, biscuit, sausage gravy and biscuits in, in the prisons um, and uh, was also going to allow for takings without compensation by the government uh, during emergencies. So, um, you know, the fact that Representative Wilde doesn't understand where his food comes from, that's just par for the course. Um, But, you know, it just amazes me, why is diesel the boogeyman? You know, 
diesel engines can be so efficient at moving, you know, at, at developing so much power with this, you know, you know, with the fuel they, they run on. There's just nothing else that can replace that that, that power to weight ratio that they they can generate that's mobile. You know, they can go out and move around a field that's thousands of acres out there in Sherman County to harvest the wheat to make the uh, the bread or to make the dough for the voodoo donuts in downtown Portland. <laughs> of course, that's not gluten-free, so I imagine that, you know, they'll have to, you know, there'll be some gluten-free stain. Still, you know, still requires diesel. Well, if I may. Yeah. Isn't that the same people that that kind of say, we don't need farms. If you want beef, you just go down to the store. Yeah, nah, you kind of wonder about that. But, you know, those those people don't like beef either. We're not supposed to be eating meat. I mean, that was the whole point of Marty Wildey's banning bacon bill was he was trying to force meat substitutes into those institutions. It was his bill mandated that meat substitutes be made available in all those institutions. And at the same time, it banned processed meats from being served in those institutions. So they're going to get bacon strips? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, instead of bacon, they get bacon strips. They won't know it's not bacon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can tell when it's turkey bacon. <laughs> I'm just picturing the commercial now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they're talking about growing meat in labs now. Well, they're they're working on 3D printing uh, food. Yeah, you know, that Star Trek thing where they press the buttons and the, the food comes out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just always wonder how that all tastes. I, I like cooking too much, you know, to, to 3D print my food or have instant food of some kind. I like the process. Well, I'm just surprised they haven't come out and said, uh, save, save the ecosystem, eat recycled foods. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I think uh, might have someone on there. You want to check see if they're. I don't see a question mark, but they might be calling. Thanks, Robin. So, yeah, as as we're talking about vegan strips, it always makes me jump back to the poodles and think about them. They know the difference between vegan strips and bacon. Sorry, <laughs> the poodles know. So, um, you know, it, it, you know it, so we're going to have bills, you know, that are going to get hearings that are about restricting diesel, but we can't get the bills that, you know, exempt COVID relief payments from state taxation or make it easier for folks to rebuild uh, from the fires. You know, that's just, you know, the way the way things go. Uh, here in in Oregon, you know, we'll, we'll spend time trying to devise ways to make farmers and truckers' lives harder and make your consumer goods more expensive. I mean, we still haven't seen the full impact of what the one percent corporate activities tax is going to do to prices in Oregon, let alone 
the ever-increasing minimum wage that's still got a couple phases of increases to go yet. But there is a bill to put a $17 minimum wage in place across the entire state. Now, we've got time for that sort of nonsense. Still can't understand why we can't get to the important stuff first. But I guess maybe there's some argument about who's important and, you know, to, important to who. Um, you know, we can talk about bills that, that are going to uh, set prevailing wage, you know, higher across the state. We can talk about other, you know, bills, you know, that are, are going to basically make all of our public works projects across the state cost more. Uh, but, you know, those are union priorities. <laughs> Those bills are going to probably move and get heard and all that stuff before we actually see something to exempt your COVID relief payment from state taxation. Jay, we have Jeff on the line that would like to add his two cents worth. Come on in, Jeff. Hey, Jay. Wow, so much out there, huh? It's just insanity. Yeah. Um, well, that I guess my little session. topic for today is the price of wood. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I had to repair. Yeah, I had to repair a fence today. You know, over the over the week, just 20 feet of fence. The fence boards, cedar fence boards, are four dollars and 21 cents each. Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! So 20 feet of fence. That 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 was expensive. Yeah, you know, and, you know, those winds that we had during the, you know, I just, I kind of put it off until I had a nice, dry, somewhat warm day to do this. I mean, this is amazing because I not only have to make my own repairs and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with wood, but, you know, when you look at, at the, uh, the futures market for, for lumber, it's out of this world. I mean, it's trading about $1,000 a board foot, you know, board foot contract. And some idiot did a fat finger trade and drove it up to 1700 at the end of trading day. This is in complete madness. Is this, going to be ca- is this being caused by the fires? Is it being caused by um, uh, carbon capture, you know, to not allow the force to be cut? I mean, what is, what is driving this? Uh, there are a couple things that are driving that. Um, and and I, it's been a while since I read the article on why lumber prices have jumped up. But um, one of them is COVID and the, the supply of foreign um, lumber is, is diminished to a certain degree just because of the logistics of moving it around the world. So there's, a, there's not quite as much movement of lumber in the world market from country to country. So that makes, you know, you're depending, more dependent on domestic supply. And in this country with the wildfires here in, in Oregon driving a, a, a high demand. In addition, one of the things COVID has done is overheat the single family housing market in the suburbs. People are moving out of the cities because they want a yard for their kids to play in because their kids can't go to school. Hmm. And the market for housing has gone through the roof across the country. So, you know, everybody's trying to build to capitalize on that high, you know, um, market in housing, and that that competition for that lumber is just going through the roof. 
and then there's some anticipation that the amount, uh, unfortunately, at least the forest, the fires in Oregon disproportionately hit a lot of private lands because of the, just the where they started in the wind direction. And the federal lands aren't being aren't being cut and salvaged, so they're probably not going to produce any timber, you know, that, you know, for a while the ones that were damaged. But the private lands that got burned are the, the supply of lumber for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years out. Now they're going to have to get salvaged, you know, with minimal, with, you know, less board feet coming off of them and replanted, and they won't be ready for harvest for 50 years. So there's this, this, you know, long-term um, shortage that may happen due to due to the fires that impacted, you know, because Oregon's the number one producer of, of, of uh, dimensional lumber, you know, in the country. So you, you think about that impact that has and the fact that our federal forests are not contributing to our lumber supply. They're basically almost no harvest compared to what they could be. So yeah. there's real need for us to change federal forest policy. And I was just, you know, I was toying with the idea, you know, build a, a very large pole barn and just stock it full of, you know, two by sixes and, and plywood. And I thought that would be a great idea because if the prices just go up to the moon, but then again, the governor has passed some executive order that they could just come in and take it if there's an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the insanity that we're in now. Well, and any time you buy a commodity to stockpile against inflation, um, you always have the chance of, of the, that, that particular commodity falling to pieces. So it's a, a risky venture at that. It's kind of like buying gold when it's on a, on a high. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but how many people it, buy a commodity it, it, with the fear that the government will come and take it away? Yeah. What? I'm sorry, Jeff. I just like how many people go out and buy a commodity and, and then have to fear that the government, your United States government, your Oregon government, with an executive order will just come and take it if there's an emergency and not have to compensate you for that. And that's yeah. your insanity. And that, yeah. And that was what Representative Wildey's bill would have allowed and codified it. Um, and that was what, you know, he ended up having to pull the bill because he got so much heat over it when people found out what he was doing. Um, and he tried to explain it away, but it was just, it was straight out just a, a power grab. And it was the kind of thing you, you would see in communist China as they were preparing to, you know, nationalize assets and take away capitalist rotors, you know, you know, it was all based on the fact that the state could just do it and not compensate you know, that, that's the, one of the first steps towards a communist government is starting to give your, govern, your government that power. We should never tolerate that. Never take yeah. it without compensation. Well, Jay, once again, thank you very much. Um, just the weather report from the coast here. It's a clear day, kind of windy, freezing in the morning. And, um, yeah, you even have to scrape off the ice off your windshield if you have it parked outside. So, but spring is upon us yeah yeah it was pretty been, been pretty cold here in the mornings in the valley uh frost every morning the last three days but it looks like we got a front coming in you guys are going to get some rain here by tonight so 
Batten down the hatches, make sure that fence is braced good that you just put up for an incredible. <laughs> All righty. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jeff. See, that's all you have to do to change the conversation here on the Bo's Nose Show. We went from from COVID to uh, to the high cost of, of lumber, uh, diesel to and lumber. So yeah, and it is that's one of the things facing the folks rebuilding upriver right now is building materials are incredibly expensive, and part you know, and it's not just the lumber that's gotten expensive. Buy some plumbing supplies. Go in and look at electrical supplies. All of that is going up because of the supply chain from China on a lot of those manufactured goods got held up for quite a while in COVID. And now the demand's peaking as everybody's trying to build across the entire country. People are realizing maybe it's not such a great idea to live on top of each other in the middle of a densely populated city. In fact, I saw one study that showed that there's a correlation between uh, the percentage of the population that regularly uses mass transit to the COVID case rates. <laughs> so, you know, yes, us folks in the suburbs may sit in traffic in our in our in our you know single occupancy vehicles, um, but we're not catching COVID at the same time. <laughs> and and people are looking for that 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 house with the yard and the ability to, you know, have a little separation, you know, over time because they realize, you know, sometimes maybe it's not such a great thing to not have a place for your kid to play safely and be able to social distance from your neighbors. So, you know, I had a couple other topics I wanted to get to on the Bo's Nose show. And uh, one of them I think Robin's going to want to jump in on. Uh, well, hold on. Robin's checking on a caller. Right? But, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about Springfield and the, the land that they got available for development there on the river a little bit, some of the proposals. And uh, I'll wait, wait for Robin to be available to talk about that. So we might just, you know, jump back a bit and mention one the phone number again is 646-721-9887 and uh robin do we have somebody waiting to get on the show or are they just listening oh it looks like we got frank hi jay i was just i was looking at one of the gun bills that are out there and it just drives me nuts to think that they're putting through a bill where they want you to lock up your gun your trigger guard and then they want you to put it in a secure box and hide it away, and if you don't do that, then they're going to find you. I just, what's the use of having a weapon if you can't use it and you can't get to it? Yeah. I mean, literally, you know, as it that bill, the way it's written, it's still carry. If I uh, go to the restroom and a single occupancy restroom, one of those unisex ones, and I pull my Jay, pistol, I'm going to have pulse. to jump off. There's so much static on my so phone. Much, I'll have to listen oh to you. I'll be, okay, I, but I'll be listening. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'll, I'll respond offline here. Thanks, Frank. I just was trying to explain that as a concealed carry uh, licensee, I carry a lot, and uh, you know, I don't probably don't have to explain to people that carry, but you know, it's a lot of weight around around your your belt 
And uh, if you're going to the restroom and uh, you, you sometimes want to get that weight off your belt before you unbuckle. So, you know, you go to a restroom where there's, you know, one of those kind of unisex ones, the single occupancy, and you take your pistol out of your holster and set it on the counter to use the uh, facilities, you're breaking the law because you now no longer have possession of that weapon on your person and it's not got a trigger guard on it. So you would technically have to carry a trigger guard with you everywhere you went and a lockbox so that if you had to go to the restroom, you know, um, you could lock your weapon up <laughs> before you use the facilities. That's silly of a bill. But uh, I, 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 before we get off the air, I just want to jump on the Springfield issue because um, we only have about five minutes left. Springfield, you know, does a lot of good things. They're really pro-business, trying to get things done in their city. Um, and I, I commend them for that. And as part of that, they have nine acres that is prime riverfront property in Glenwood that they're wanting to have uh, developed. And so they put it out for proposals from developers. And um, at least two of the proposals are proposing sports facilities as part of the development. And uh, I've always been kind of a critic of putting sports facilities in what I would consider high pedestrian, high value um, retail office um, and, and residential areas because they're dead zones. The only time they're alive is during an event. And the rest of the time, which is a good portion of the year, they're dead space. You know, it's a block. You have to walk past that facility to get to something that's actually open. You know, they're not, they, they, you know, they seem like they'd be something attractive, but they're not necessarily attractive. And that's such prime real estate. You put a facility like that a block or two off of, you know, into an area that's maybe not so prime and not so visible, um, and also usually has better parking, <laughs> et cetera, you know, that, that's where you put those facilities. You know, within walking distance of transit and everything is, is good, but you would put it not on the river side of Franklin Boulevard, you put it on the land side, away from the river, maybe a block off of Franklin Boulevard. You know, that's where that, you know, a baseball stadium or a soccer stadium should go. But I, I know Robin had some opinions about this because I, I, I saw her post and I just had to laugh because um, it was, I think, a KMTR story or something she commented on. <laughs> and I just because we're friends on Facebook, her comment came up on my feed and I just had to laugh because she kind of was, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> taking Springfield task for some other stuff in, 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 uh, uh, in her posts. But so, uh, Robin, you want to, you want to review your, your comment on the, the whole Glenwood development proposals? <laughs> yeah. Give me a minute to find it. <laughs> yeah. I think she had something to say about the seven restaurants in Springfield and the, uh, you know, people traveled up to Gateway Mall up there at, at um, Beltline and Gateway. They could see the giant waste paper basket on a pole. And uh, if they went down to the, uh, 
the um, bus rapid transit station that the MX LTD folks operate down there in downtown, they could see a funnel uh, up on top of the building, <laughs> you know, and that, that you know, she was wondering if they were going to have equally beautiful public art in this new development and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe at least have a restaurant or two, who knows? <laughs> I found it. If you want me to read it. Sure. Okay. It says, Come to Springfield and see the mural of the Simpsons. Visit the museum and one of our five restaurants. Yes, here in Springfield, we also believe that your visit should be very, a very rewarding experience. As such, we have commissioned a special police task force to make sure that you are not bothered by one of Springfield's three prostitutes. And don't forget to head down to the Springfield Mall on Gateway where you can admire our unique piece of art, the giant weights basket. I mean, er, the flame at the corner of Gateway and Beltline, and its companion, the Giant Funnel, located at the Springfield bus station. And who could forget the unique challenge of dodging potholes on our main streets? So yes, don't go to Eugene, home of the Oregon Ducks and concrete campers. Come to Springfield for a unique vacationing experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, But actually, you know, Springfield does have a lot going for it. you know, the Lamelaine um, park system is pretty unique. Uh, it between the Mackenzie River and the Willamette, um, kind of gateway to the Cascade Mountains there, um, and it's business friendly. I mean, my gosh, your downtown looks a whole lot different from Eugene's downtown right now. You know, I got all sorts of you know. You guys actually have more than five restaurants because I can think of five just off the top of my head right there in, in, on Main Street in downtown, you know, Planktown and, and several others. You got um, three of them there located at the uh, public house um, along with a good, pretty good beer spot um, and uh, whiskey bar, <laughs> you know, and I don't see a lot of camping in the, in along the the roads and in, in, in the uh, public rights ways in Springfield, like I see in Eugene, or piles of trash, or people flying signs and, and, and uh, accosting people, uh, asking them for change when they're trying to dine outside at, at, per the governor's orders um, here in Oregon. Uh, although we're now finally allowed to sit because the uh, Magic scepter has waved again, and we're up to 50% capacity. But, uh, yeah, Springfield's got a lot going on for it. And, uh, you know, it's really a really great thing, uh, and, I, and I really appreciate Springfield because they're about, you know, having people be successful and, and rewarding people for being successful. Well, I'm hearing the music in the background, which is Robin's hint that we're running out of time. So we'll be back next week for the Bose Nose Show here at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific. Is it standard time now or is it savings time? I can never remember which it is. And I hate that time change stuff. We need to stop that. Where's that, Bill? Next week here on the Bose Nose Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. (laughs) 